When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Gig Hockey Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and we have... Uh, well, we have a show for you today. It will happen. I'm going to have a monologue and we're going to talk to Will Helms like we do every Monday. I'm not really sure where this is going, though, because I don't know how much there is to say after South Carolina's 30-6 to loss to Texas A&M on Saturday. Another unbelievably uninspired offensive performance for South Carolina. I was at the game, and I'm really glad that I was because... If I, if I were not at this game, I would have absolutely nothing to say about it. But before we get into what exactly happened on Saturday night and what it might mean for the future, I want to remind all of you listening to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. Those are all great ways to support the podcast if you like what we do and want us to keep doing more of it. So Saturday was not only my first time going to Kyle Field and College Station, but it was actually my first time that I've ever been to Texas. We flew into Houston Friday early afternoon and went to a Houston Rockets game that night, which was really fun. And we stayed like kind of in downtown Houston, which was cool. Like I said, never been to Texas before. Didn't really know what to expect. Houston was all right. I wish I had gotten to spend a little bit more time there to get more of a sense of the city because it was kind of we're kind of in and out, kind of a whirlwind trip. Uh, But the next day we drove to College Station. It was about an hour and a half each way. And College Station was was pretty cool actually. They're like I like kind of like Houston. I didn't get a ton of time to explore, but we you know we posted up in a little bar. They have a little row of bars, kind of their five points, I guess maybe, but it's on campus. Um, so that was pretty cool. But then the main event, I mean, was just so impressive. Like I said, this is the first time I've been to Kyle Field, and I know that it's huge, but I didn't realize like how huge it was gonna feel. Like you really feel because obviously I'm mostly at Williams Price during the fall because that's where most of the games happen. So. I didn't know how much I would feel the extra 20,000 or however many more seats are in that stadium than Williams-Brice, but you can really feel it. It was packed. I think I saw uh, on the TV broadcast that it was like the sixth highest attendance ever for Texas A&M, which is incredible. I know that's a relatively recent renovation that they've done, so it makes sense that with now more capacity that they're kind of setting those records pretty often. I was a little bit surprised, though, because it was against Carolina, and frankly, one of the things that did surprise me about College Station walking around, because I was like, okay, it's all self-contained. They have like you know like the bars on this part of campus, and I was expecting everything to be a little more raucous, a little more, I don't know, feeling like game day, and it it wasn't really like that. There wasn't a lot of excitement. You know, people were walking around campus like, I don't know, like just doing normal kind of stuff. It wasn't crazy. Once you got to the bar part of it, it was you know lively and stuff. But the rest of campus was just kind of going about its business, pretty like a pretty normal Saturday. And so I actually asked our bartender, I was like, hey, so so what's the deal? Is it just because Carolina sucks and like no one's that excited for the game that I, I don't know, I was expecting to see things on fire and I mean not really, but when when it's game day in Columbia, I mean the things are basically on fire like all over the city. It's just it's just crazy. It's fun, there's live it's lively, there's energy, and that wasn't really uh, happening anywhere on campus. And she was like, No, no, no. So whenever there's a late kickoff, people go to like early morning tailgates. 
and just drink all morning and then usually like wear themselves out by the middle of the afternoon. So now everybody's napping and then everyone's going to rally for the game. And then if you come back here after the game, I don't remember the name of the bar where we were, but um, come back here after the game, then, you know, that's that's where you're going to find the party. I was like, "Uh, okay, so they've got it down to a science. So that explained that at least a little bit. But by the time we got to the game, like I said, it was lively again. It was incredible. Huge crowd. The stadium is really, really impressive. It feels like a pro stadium more than more than most of the college stadiums that I've been to anyway, which was really cool. Uh, you can buy alcohol in there. I did not because I was cold and I didn't want to hold a cold beer. I did get a hot chocolate, though, which saved me a little bit in the second half. And, um, you know, sat in the little visitor section with all the other Carolina fans. And I have to say, was pretty impressed with uh, how well the Carolina fans traveled, knowing that this game was probably going to go almost exactly like it did. And I guess they're probably in the same boat that we were in where we planned to make this trip and you know, June or July or August or sometime this summer. And so you're, you're like, oh, well, you know, we already bought tickets and everything. So we're, we're kind of going anyway. But um, impressive crowd, like the like the visiting crowd, like the home crowd. And I haven't decided where I land on this exactly because the game day experience at Kyle Field was just as cool as like everything aesthetic. Like the stadium was awesome, but the environment inside was also awesome. There were times when it was kind of weird, though, because – as a visiting fan, you're sitting there, and there are all these things going on that clearly everybody else in the in the stadium, you know, the other ninety five thousand or hundred thousand fans or whatever, are totally in on. And it's kind of, uh, I guess, I, I compared it to going to a fish show, which I'm normally on the other side of that. But what I imagine going to a fish show for an outsider is like, in terms of, there were a lot of inside jokes and and sort of like moments when people knew to do things or respond to you know, uh, like call and response or respond to a cheer or a song in a certain way. And on the one hand, it was really cool to see everybody that was like in on that. And, you know, they did the like the swaying thing, which is really cool. And, you know, just a lot of little things like that. But there were also parts where I was like, oh man, this is, this is kind of creepy. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm in like a, like a giant cult meeting, except I'm, you know, one of the outsiders. So there were times when it was like a little bit intimidating, but I think that's part of the, the, the intimidation factor and just like general game day vibe is that part of it. And it wasn't like unwelcoming. I, I didn't really interact with many A&M fans, but I definitely didn't have any bad interactions with them. So it's nothing like that, but you're just sitting there and you're like, oh man, this is, this is kind of, it's kind of cool, but it's a little bit weird. Um, the, the one thing that I will say, well, I guess I'll say two things. So Carolina's definitely got a better video board than AM. They have like two tiny ones like up in the corner, which was like kind of annoying because it wasn't great for seeing replays. Not that there were that many replays that were worth watching anyway. Um, and the other part, you, sometimes you just take for granted because you see 2001 every week when you're a Carolina fan and you go to williams Bryce for all the home games. You, you almost start to take for granted how cool that intro is. And I, I know that it's cool and I recognize it and I always try to be there for it because it is really cool. And that's when I you know allow myself to be a fan. But for as much as everything else about the game day atmosphere of Caulfield is incredible and in, in, in different ways like i mentioned sometimes intimidating sometimes cool all, all very unique the intro the the team coming out was just kind of like man they play that kanye song they come out from the middle of the field which for whatever reason i never like i think tennessee does that and alabama does that and some teams do that for some reason i feel like it's cooler when they come out from the corner as opposed to like straight behind the goalpost. but uh, that's that's like really nitpicky but yeah, it was just like not as cool as 2001 so Everything about Caulfield was amazing. Would love to go back, probably to not watch a Carolina game, like just go watch a, you know, I don't know, Texas A&M, Alabama or something like that. Watch a, another cool game. Uh, but the intro wasn't that cool. And uh, the video boards were small. But those are like uh, just literally things that I'm looking for to try and nitpick for what was otherwise a 
just fantastic game day experience. Would recommend it to anybody. Um, again, if you're a, a big Carolina fan, you know probably don't go for a, a Carolina game because I don't think Carolina's ever going to beat A&M, at least uh, not as these teams are presently constituted. So maybe don't go back in, in two years. But it's a really, really cool place to go see a game. And that's saying something because I, I think I saw like the very worst version of a football game that I possibly could have seen on Saturday. 30 to 6, as I mentioned, I mean, really like 30 to 3. I don't know why Carolina decided to kick a field goal down by 27 at like the death. I know nothing at that point mattered. It just seemed like a really weird call, really weird concession. I know it's, you know, fourth and whatever it was. And I mean, you are technically cutting it to a three score game when you kick a field goal because it's 30 to 6. And now you're just three touchdowns and three two point conversions away. But you know, you're you're not you're not really doing that math. Like, just go for a touchdown. This is thirty to three that much worse than thirty to six, and not that thirty to ten is that much better. But there was something about it that just felt like such a, I don't know, kind of embarrassing concession for Carolina. And everything about that game offensively was horrendous. Now the defense was fine. It was you know it was thirteen to three going into the fourth quarter, and it was just uh, from from what from where I was sitting and from what I've seen, it's just a matter of the defense getting worn down when you're on the field as much as you are. There's no way to, to I mean to not give up a couple big plays here and there. Texas A&M was running the ball at will by the end of the game. Obviously, that 75-yard touchdown run really kind of capped it off and put it away. But before that, Carolina had done a pretty good job. By the fourth quarter, you could tell they were getting tired. The the plays run by each team, I think it was like 60, 63 for Carolina, 82 for A&M, something like that. I don't have the count in front of me right now. I'd be very curious to see what that count was after the third quarter because that's when... I mean, Carolina in the fourth quarter started to have some of those longer drives, just keep, keeping the ball a little bit more because A&M didn't care, just playing prevent, just don't give up any crazy huge touchdowns or anything like that. So it was a lot more lopsided than that. Carolina didn't convert any of their first 10 third downs. They ended up converting two of their 15 total, two of them, I think, on the same drive when they ended up turning it over on downs. But, I mean, I, 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 there's not much to say. The defense was fine. The defense was pretty good. They did a good job of uh, bothering Kellen Mond. They sacked him a couple times, got in his face a few more times, hit him a couple times, held him to fewer than 50 yards rushing, and he's he, he and Zach Thomas, the guy that Carolina's faced the last two weeks, have been the two most legit dual-threat quarterbacks that Carolina's seen this year and held him to combined, like, you know, 40 yards or something like that. I don't, I don't I think I feel like Zach Thomas finished with negative rushing yards, but I don't remember. It, it, was, it was, like, fewer than 10 or maybe, like, 12, something like that. It wasn't a lot. So Carolina's done a good job in that respect. Uh, you know, Texas A&M ran the ball pretty well, but that stat, again, is, is also very inflated when you factor in that 75-yard run at the end of the fourth quarter and that long drive when, I guess, Isaiah Spiller had like three big chunk plays on that drive. But by and large, it, this is the story of the season. You can't criticize the defense. They did exactly what they needed to to keep Carolina in the game. They, they can't run the ball. They can't throw the ball. They don't have any wide receivers. Pass protection. Ryan Helinski only got sacked. Actually, Ryan Helinski did not get sacked. Carolina gave up one sack. It was to carry on Joyner. It was late in the fourth quarter. I think on maybe Carolina's might have been the very last drive of the game. I don't remember off the top of my head. Ryan Helinski did get sacked a lot. He got bothered a few more times, was able to get the ball out quickly, which is, you know, credit to him. Which What he lacks in athleticism and escapability, I think he does a good job of making up for it in, in terms of getting the ball out quickly. So you don't necessarily give up a lot of sacks or as many as you normally would if you had someone that got rid of the ball maybe a little bit slower than Helinski, but just the the complete ineptitude of the offense continues to baffle me, and, and it continues to be frustrating, I think, because it's a combination of things, and if you're a Carolina fan, I've said this a lot of times now, this is another broken record episode, I guess, but that's kind of how the season has gone. You would feel better if it were just one thing, but Carolina, after running the ball extremely well through 
70% of the season all of a sudden has just fallen off a cliff. And part of it, I, I was looking at the numbers because Carolina's had three three games this year where they've run the ball for fewer than 50 yards, which is ridiculous. And the Missouri one, at the time, and, and even still, you almost chalk up as <clears throat> an aberration because Carolina had, I think it was six carries by their running backs in the first half. They finished with 14 total. But, I mean, you can't say Carolina couldn't run the ball when you only try to run it 14 times. Appalachian State was, I mean, that's a little bit less compelling of an argument to make because Carolina's running backs did end up getting 22 carries. They just couldn't go anywhere. So I think that's one that you legitimately look at and say that's a horrible performance. And while this was another horrible rushing performance for Carolina, they finished the game with 17 carries for 45 yards, only 10 carries from the running backs. Rico Dowdle, seven carries for 12 yards. And then Kevin Harris, three carries for nine yards. Look, those aren't good averages. Rico Dowdle had a long of 13, that first carry of the game. And so then he had six carries for minus one yard. That's not a formula for success. I'm not saying if Carolina had run Rico 40 times that it necessarily would have changed the outcome of the game. You know, same with Kevin Harris, three carries, nine yards. 300 carries, not good, but it's not like you're losing yards. It, it, I mean, it's, you got to run it sometimes. And Carolina has been so willing to get away from the run this year, even though it's been their strength. And look, even when it's not working, I, I know it drives people crazy. It's like, oh, they're running the same play. They're just running into the back of the line. You're not going anywhere. But passing the ball is still not Carolina's strong suit. And given how the game was going, again, it's 13-3 to in the fourth quarter. It's not like the thing was so far out of reach that you just had to throw it 46 times. 41 for Holinsky, 4 for Joyner, and then Shai Smith had the pass that Markway dropped. 16-41, 175 yards, no turnovers for Ryan Holinsky, 3-4 for 40 yards for Joyner. That's just never been the game plan for Carolina. I, I, think, I think part of the frustration for me is I would have rather seen Carolina score six points, and have an abysmal, embarrassing offensive performance because they were sticking with their guns and what they knew they could do. Again, because the game was was ne- was never so far out of reach until it was over. By the time A&M got to 23, that was, that was the ball game right there. And maybe this is a foolish distinction. Maybe this doesn't matter. Maybe it's just, I don't know. It probably wouldn't even actually feel different psychologically, but it just seems like you want to go down doing what you're good at. Carolina doesn't have... Good wide receivers, just straight up. I know Brian Edwards didn't play. That was a surprise to me. Shai Smith had a 41-yard catch and finished the game with two catches for 41 yards. That's kind of how Shai Smith's season has gone this year. And then the rest of the guys you have, I mean, you have you have so many quarterbacks out there catching balls. Bailey Hart, I don't think he caught a ball, but Bailey Hart, Jay Urich, DeKiran Joyner. Those are all your backup quarterbacks, and that's half of your wide receiving core right now. Chad Terrell and Chavis Dawkins and those other guys, obviously you're down to tight end. They don't have a lot of talent. They don't really have a lot of options so even when Carolina's not running the ball well, it still seems like that's a better option. And if and if nothing else, you're saving some of the clock. You're allowing your defense to not play as many snaps, not be on the field as much. And if you shrink the game, you know you're not going to score a lot of points. Don't you kind of want to shrink the game anyway? If you know that nothing's working, you just want to limit possessions. And when you're throwing the ball a lot, and when you're throwing a lot of incomplete passes... That's kind of doing the opposite. I'm not saying that's why Carolina lost the game, because Texas A&M is just better in every way and played better, and they were always going to win. But the difference between 30-6 to six and maybe, I don't know, 21-6, to 21-3, it was the extra possessions at the end of the game that were really you know, the end. And obviously, like I said, they were going to lose this anyway. It doesn't really matter how close it is, I don't think, because at this point, I don't know. It, just, it really doesn't matter. Nothing in this season matters anymore. But it's just head-scratching game plans, unwillingness to adjust 
or I guess inability to correctly adjust. We have seen Carolina at times try to adjust what they've done this year, and it just hasn't worked. And I think we're seeing that Brian McClendon is just a little bit overmatched right now. He's a young coordinator. I trust Will, and I trust other smart football people that I've talked to that think that some of the things that he does are good, and that he will eventually be a good coordinator, just isn't right now. Because you got you got to I guess kind of take your lumps, but I mean it's just it's not working for Carolina, and that it's not the only reason. Again, to go back to what I said earlier, it's a combination of things, and that is the most frustrating part. But I, I think a coach's job more than anything, more than what plays are you calling, more than just more than anything, your job is to say how can I maximize what I have right now. And for Carolina, you can say there's not a whole lot to maximize, but I promise you. The thing that Carolina can least maximize, or I guess has the lowest ceiling in terms of what the max is, is that passing attack. If Ryan Holinsky's not accurate, if he doesn't have real wide receivers, real SEC wide receivers, it just doesn't make any sense. Just run the triple option against Clemson. Just see what happens. I'm not saying it's going to work. I'm not saying if Rico Dotto had 25 carries and Kevin Harris had 14 carries, that Carolina would have won the football game. I don't know. I can't even say that's their strength anymore. I, that, that has been their strength all year. But now three times you've run the ball f- for fewer than 50 yards. And two of you know one of them was against App State and then Missouri and A&M, you say, at least as are conference opponents, both of those games are on the road. But just the, just not even running the ball. I don't know. It's weird. Carolina got slaughtered in time of possession, which is a stat that doesn't matter until it does. And the other team has the ball for almost 42 minutes. I think A&M center after the game said that he, he was listening to Carolina defensive players maybe complain about how long A&M had, had the ball. That's a drag. I don't think the offense and the defense are getting along right now for Carolina. Which, I guess the good thing is they have a bye week and then they have, excuse me, they have an open week and then they have the Clemson game and then the season's over, mercifully, for many Carolina fans. And uh, maybe for guys on the defense that are tired of putting in actually pretty good performances and still getting their asses beat and humiliated on national television because the offense is completely inept. Because quarterbacks, freshmen, and very inconsistent. You don't have wide receivers. You can't really run the ball and also don't. And you don't have a coordinator who is able to maximize what little remaining talent there is on that offense. And this is all without getting sort of into the injury question, which may be a discussion for the end of the season. But as I mentioned off the top, I'm very curious to see where Will Helms goes with this. The advanced metrics are certainly not going to be kind to South Carolina on offense. I imagine he and I will end up having a little bit of a, of a discussion about the bigger picture of what happened on Saturday, what this means for the future. Again, not a lot of new information. This is, I mean, it's just an extension of the Appalachian State game. You're just playing a better team, and that's why you lost 30-6 to six instead of 20-15. to 15. But that game and probably this Clemson game, certainly not helping anybody's case for keeping their jobs in terms of the offensive stuff. Except for maybe Thomas Brown, but look, now Carolina's run for... Fewer than 50 yards three times this year. That, that just blows my mind. I know I've said that stat a lot. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. And only 10 carries for your running backs on Saturday. And 14 against Missouri. I know the Tavian Feaster's out. Kevin Harris didn't do much. Looked fine. Three carries. Was that right? Yeah. Three carries for nine yards. Long of four. And I, I feel bad now because I, I feel like I'm low energy. And I don't want y'all to think that I'm sad. Because I don't really care. It's just like the same thing over and over again and you're banging your head against the wall and it's boring more than anything like i i'm never getting these hours back that i'm having to watch carolina this year um it's really sad it's really sad i'm glad that carolina's off this week and i hope the clemson game is a noon game i'm definitely not going to that game 
it's just been not a fun season. This is so this is a really fun job. Obviously, this is a fun job. But this is when it really becomes work. Having to watch that Texas A&M game again, having to watch the Appalachian State game again, try to make some sense of it. And again, not because I'm sad, because I don't care. But it's just so boring. It's so boring. Unbelievably boring. Wilhelm's coming up next. All right, on the phone line now, as he is every Monday, and hopefully with a lot more to say about this last South Carolina game than I had to say about Carolina's 30-6 to loss to Texas A&M. It's Will Helms, everybody's favorite. Will, were you at the game this Saturday? I was not. Um, covered basketball Friday night, uh, taught a class Saturday morning, and you know sat in my living room and watched the game. Um, just about all of it, anyway, uh, Saturday night. I was going to say, that must have been brutal. I was really glad that I was that I went to the game because, one, it was really cool to go to Kyle Field. It's a great place. I would highly recommend seeing a football game there if you or anybody listening has not. But I think if I were watching it on TV, I would have either just changed the channel or fallen asleep. It was one of those really awkward things of like, well, I really am supposed to watch the game because I cover the team. But also, I'm like, you've got Oklahoma Baylor on. That's a very good game. Um, didn't really want to watch the game at some points, but, you know, forced myself to watch most of it. So. Yeah, that's good. It was it was a tough watch, no doubt about it. And let's just start right there. The offense was bad. The offense has been bad all year. And there's no other way to, to cut it. Like, there's nothing – I don't think there's any saving grace about it. You may be able to change my mind. You may have some stats to the contrary. But everything from South Carolina's third sub-50 rushing yard performance of the season and Ryan Holinsky's 17 of 41, 175-yard performance. No turnovers, I guess, is maybe one positive that you say, but – was there anything positive to take away from Saturday offensively? Travis Dawkins had his career high PFF grade. Okay. What was that? Uh, 72. All right. That's actually, that's a pretty solid grade. You said 70 is kind of like a, like a good game and anything above that is, is quite a good game, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, solid 13 snaps. Um, graded out well in the past. Didn't run block well, but you know, nobody did. So, so yeah. what is, Let's start with Holinsky, actually, because I think I think the the Russian conversation is a little bit more interesting. So let's start with Holinsky. He didn't have a lot of help. Uh, we know South Carolina's receiving core, especially without Brian Edwards, is terrible. With Brian Edwards, they're still below average. I, I think I think I saw you tweet this out before the game that as a unit, South Carolina's receiving core is like 79th in the country, according to Pro Football Focus. You take out Brian Edwards, and that number plummets to like 128th or 129th. So how much of Ryan Holinsky's bad statistical day was a bad day for him, and how much of it was lack of perimeter playmakers? To put it frankly, I think everybody was terrible. Um, it's just one of those games where you've had games in the year where Ryan Holinsky hasn't been good, but maybe Brian Edwards, I think back to Missouri, Brian Edwards has a really long uh, screen pass go for a touchdown um, that kind of makes up, and at least you can take something good from it. Say, okay, you know, they, they had that play right there, and it was a weird game. Um, or you think back to some of the other offensive performances, you say, but at least Ryan Holinsky played well. Or at least the offensive line played well, and nobody played well in this game. It was just um, Ryan Holinsky ended up with a 50 offensive grade. I do think a lot of that comes from um, – I actually talked about it a little bit last week, I think, when he airs the ball out um, in obvious pass situations. It doesn't tend to go well, as you would expect from a freshman. Um, and – at least to my eyes, I thought he played really well up until about the third quarter. Mm. Um, and then just got to the point where they realized they couldn't run the ball. Um, Texas A&M realized they couldn't run the ball. And 
Ryan Lipke realized he wasn't going to get a lot of um, help from any of his teammates, um, and they weren't going to get a lot of help from him. It just was one of those games that nothing went right. Yeah, and I tend to agree in terms of where the performance started to, uh, I guess, get derailed a little bit. I'm sure it seemed like Texas A&M made some adjustments, and it wasn't even, I mean, Carolina couldn't run the ball, but they also weren't even trying to run the ball. They weren't trying to fix it or do anything differently. South Carolina's running backs only had 10 carries on the day, which we can talk about in just a minute, because I, th- I think that's sort of a, an interesting but separate problem here, or I guess sort of related. But the th- the ball that he threw to Shai Smith in the first half was a really well-thrown ball, and Shai Smith made a really nice catch on the sideline, did a good job to stay in bounds. You know, it was just a sliver of space, and Ryan put the ball exactly where it needed to be. Um, other than that, I-, I would say the throw that DeCarion Joyner made late in the fourth quarter, garbage time, but he threads the pass, you know, in between the cornerback and the safety. Looks like they were maybe in cover two and made a really nice throw there. Those may have been, like, the only two noteworthy throws in the entire game. Was there anything else that I missed maybe in the first half from Ryan? Um, I thought he had a couple good throws, uh, a couple of drops here and there. Um, but the, the, he graded out really well. PFF actually will break down um, into 12 different places in between the numbers, outside left, outside right, at four different depths. Hmm. And will grade individually based on those depths and, you know, outside right, deep. Um, he graded out as a 93 on those throws. He threw uh, three passes deep right. Um, completed two of them, uh, one of them being to Shai Smith. I can't remember what the other one was, but it may have been like a 20-yard pass um, or something like that. And he graded out um, well, well above average in the elite um, grade there. But he also had um, three different areas that he graded out below 50. Um, and just about everywhere else was anywhere in between 58 and 62. Um, so he overall, when you just have that volume, he didn't throw that well. The biggest difference in this game was um, when he was under pressure. He's been okay this year comparatively when he's been under pressure um, compared to how he is with a clean pocket. Most analysts will say you really want to look at a clean pocket more than under pressure when uh, judging quarterbacks. But Holinsky was one for 10 with one yard when he was under pressure. Um, And that was really the difference in the game. His his numbers um, when he wasn't under pressure are actually pretty decent. Um, he was accurate on 65% of his passes, had four drops when he wasn't under pressure, um, threw for 174 yards, um, which is 5.6 yards an attempt. Not great, but did have the four drops there um, and nine first downs um, when he wasn't under pressure. But when he was under pressure, um, he graded out at under a 40 with one, like I said, one completion on 10 attempts for one yard. That's, I don't want to say that's surprising. I'm glad that you have that number because that's sort of, I guess, gives context to what I thought I saw, which is, you know, obviously Ryan Holinsky was only sacked one time officially, but was under pressure, got planted a bunch of other times. And for a guy that's not particularly mobile, was just doing everything that he could to not get sacked, not lose yardage there. And I guess one positive thing that you can take away from Ryan Holinsky this entire season, and it was true again on Saturday, is that even when he's been under pressure, he's done a good job of not turning the ball over. I guess he had the, the sack fumble against Florida, there was the fumble against Missouri, and then obviously the four interceptions. Uh, one, let's see, one of which was on a drop, one of which was a sort of a deep desperation play against Alabama. Um, the Missouri interception was bad. I don't think it was under pressure. That was right on the goal line, and I can't remember his fourth interception. Um, but even despite that, despite being under pressure, while he wasn't completing the passes, at least he wasn't turning the ball over. So if you're, if you're trying to look in terms of uh, progress or, or things to say, he's a freshman, this will get better, what are the, some things that he needs to fix? His ball security continues to be good it's just a matter of 
you know, maybe getting him an extra second and, you know, for his receivers, getting a, a little bit more separation so that for a guy that wants to get rid of the ball quickly, who doesn't have a lot of time anyway, they can sort of, uh, you know, help him do that. But that was not at all the case on Saturday. Again, partly because of the protection, partly because no one on the outside was getting separation for him at any point during the game. Yeah, and I think I tweeted during the game that that was probably my biggest takeaway from the offense is that every unit was terrible. Um, you have uh, the offensive line that just really, really, really struggled on Saturday. Um, but then you also have um, the wide receivers that when they do get open, which was very rare um, on Saturday, most of the season, honestly, but Saturday, um, they drop it. Um, and then if they do happen to get open and the offensive line does tend to block, Ryan Holinsky still has that, you know, one out of every six throws that he just either throws five, you know, five yards short or way over the head of a receiver. It was just all around just a terrible game. So the other big glaring part of this, and, and like I said, I thought this would end up being a, a sort of a larger discussion, so I wanted to save it, but we have arrived now at the rushing attack. Three games this season, Carolina's run for fewer than 50 yards, including back-to-back games, now Appalachian State and Texas A&M. Against Missouri and Texas A&M, Carolina obviously just ran the ball poorly, but also didn't run the ball very often. Against Missouri, the running backs had 14 total carries, and I think it was six at halftime. I mentioned against Texas A&M, it was just 10 carries. Rico Dottle had the 13-yard carry on the very first play of the game for South Carolina, and then in six more carries had negative one yard. Kevin Harris had three carries for nine yards. But this was the strength of the South Carolina offense all season long. The offensive line wasn't outstanding, but blocked well enough for the running backs to really make a difference. And I guess Tavian Feaster being out makes a big deal, or is a big deal, makes a big difference. Rico Dowdle is clearly not 100%. But even still, even if Rico is 70%, and even if your second guy is Kevin Harris and not Tavian Feaster, that doesn't explain the gap between what South Carolina was able to do on the ground against Florida, against Georgia, against Alabama, against excellent teams, excellent defensive teams, and Appalachian State and Texas A&M, who's good defensively, but not elite. And I guess maybe Alabama is not quite elite defensively, but against Georgia and against Alabama, Carolina didn't have any, any issues. What has happened the last two weeks on the ground? So I think a combination of the offensive line regressing over the season, um, as we, we've talked about before, the offensive line doesn't have to be elite to be able to run block. Um, you think about all the best running teams statistically in the country have elite running backs. That's, that's the main thing that does it. And maybe they've got one or two offensive linemen that they can consistently run behind if they need to. Um, but if you look at, um, you know, I always go to Wisconsin just because that's the team that's known for their offensive line. Wisconsin runs the ball well. Yes, they've got good offensive linemen, but they run the ball well because Jonathan Taylor is just absolutely elite. Um, and you look at um, LSU. I can't think of the running back's name right now. Um, but LSU runs the ball well because Clyde Edwards they have, yeah, they have elite running backs. Um, Georgia runs the ball well because they have elite running backs. And South Carolina's running backs for about the first six weeks of the season ran like elite running backs. Um, and the grades kind of show what I, I guess we've all been seeing. Um, nobody graded out well in the running game. Um, you have Ryan Holinsky, the second best graded running we're running the ball Saturday with a 52.7. You have Kevin Harris ends up at a 55.9. Uh, Karrion Joyner didn't run very well. Uh, he took a couple sacks they didn't like. And then Rico Dowdle ends up with a 48.7 um, in his rushing attack. And so over the past couple of weeks, you've seen 
I do think a lot of it has to do with uh, Rico Dowdle being hurt, um, not having a second elite guy or even very good guy. Um, I do think Kevin Harris will be a good running back at some point, but I just don't think he has the experience or the, um, I guess, mostly the experience right now to be that um, bona fide second running back that South Carolina needs. Um, But they have the running backs the past few weeks have not been grading out well. Um, And you combine that with the offensive line has been grading out even worse in the running game than they have the rest of the season. Um, And it just leads to um, South Carolina just not moving the ball well on the ground at all. Did Joe Charlton have a rushing grade for this game? So unfortunately they don't. Um, put special teams grades up yet. Um, I can check to see if they're up, um, but they're usually Wednesday, Thursday by the time that they get the special teams grades up. But I'll definitely check that. Uh, Parker White this year still has a very good rushing grade um, from the Alabama uh, fake field goal that didn't count. Um, But yeah, I mean the best, if you look at the run blocking grades, and I can sort by run blocking grade, you have three guys that were above 60, which, again, you know, 60 is our baseline, very average for run blocking. You have Xavier Leggett, who is number one at 61.4, Chad Jarrell at 60.8, and Shai Smith at 60.7. But then you look at the offensive line, and you have the highest-graded offensive lineman um, in the running game Saturday was Dylan Wanham at 59.3. From there, it just goes downhill. So Darius Hutcherson, 57.3. Uh, Donnell Stanley, 52.1. Javon Gwynn, 50.9. Jordan Rose at 48 or 49.8. So you're looking at out of 17 guys that get run blocking grades, um, three of them were average. Three of them were slightly, just ever so slightly above average. And all the other players on the offense were below average in run blocking. So it's never good when your top three run blockers are wide receivers. Um, unless they're just the best freaking run-blocking wide receivers ever in the history of football. But do these numbers, in your opinion, I guess validate the coaching staff's decision to just completely abandon the run? It's one of those, it didn't work. So, you know, they could have run the ball a bunch, and that wouldn't have worked, and we would be talking about how they need to throw the ball more. Um, but I think I, I tweeted, also tweeted this out um, and talked a little bit about it Um Saturday of I thought the first half was really I thought it was solidly called from a play calling perspective and they ended up with three points and it just shows you how behind this offense is right now that nothing worked I I thought they they ran some good um a trick play here and there when they needed to um Ryan Holinsky made some good throws and you know if he made a good throw it was dropped um if somebody didn't get most of the time nobody got open somebody did get open, Ryan Holinsky missed him. Um, if they ran a trick play, they ran a perfect trick play. Shai Smith makes a beautiful throw for a wide receiver, and Kyle Markway just drops it. Um, they ran some, I thought, uh, they ran pin and pull play action, which they haven't done all season, um, and tried to hit a deep ball, and Shai Smith could not get away from his defender at all. Um, they, you know, I think he tried to check down to the to Kyle Markway, who was also covered really well. Um, so, you know, plays that in a vacuum would be really good based on what South Carolina has done this season just did not work. And so we can we can kind of throw that on play calling. We can kind of throw that on coaching philosophy if we want to. But at some point, guys have to go out and make a play. And, you know, by that point, I think they ran the ball or threw the ball too much in the second half. But 
you know, if they had thrown for 300 yards in the second half and come back, we would have said, like, what a great decision it was to throw the ball. Right. It's one of those things where we question every decision because it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point and one to keep in mind because so often we do end up, you know, just find ourselves litigating results rather than process. And I think it's important to look at both of those things, but it just feels like, I guess it just feels like I've seen this movie before where Carolina just too quickly gets away from, you know, in, in some cases getting away from the run. In some cases it's leaning too heavily on it. It's just, they will go one or the other. And it seems like they forget about the, the other phase of the offense against North Carolina, you know, there, it was too much running the ball. It's like, okay, well, you're allowed to throw the ball. You know, you're trying yeah. to, to, to beat the clock, I guess, and, and or burn the clock. You're trying to get out of this game with a win, hold on to your lead, whatever. Still just, like, run your offense. And now, you know, Carolina was down 13-3 to up until the start of the fourth quarter. You're not so far out of the game that you have to be slinging it around. I understand that you're not running it well, but you're also not particularly passing it well. But it's just, it, it seems like too often, I don't know if this is Brian McClendon, I don't know if it's Will Muschamp, Dan Werner, I don't know who's making these decisions, what's influencing this, or if it's totally random, but Carolina just has not been able to balance itself offensively all season long. And, and typically, I guess for most of the season, it has been because they have an inability to throw the ball down the field with any regularity, sort of limits what they do. Defenses can play up on the passes, and so they find themselves just running a little bit more. And for most of the season, the running backs have done a good job of that. But I feel like the lack of, I don't know, just multiple looks, wrinkles, anything on offense, probably more than anything else, just kind of summarizes why this offense has been so underwhelming all season. Yeah, and it's one of those things of I, I hear a lot of people say that South Carolina's offense doesn't have an identity, and I, I agree. I would agree with that statement. I think the problem is they've tried to have an identity, um, and they've tried multiple things, and none of them have worked. Um, so you know, we could we say that you know if we look at a triple option team like Army, they have an identity. They run the ball a lot. Well, if Army's not running the ball, they don't have an identity. Hmm. Um, and we look at say LSU. LSU likes to spread it out now, and they'll go one back and. Um, you know, throw it all over the place, and then um, they'll combine that with some stretch runs and some one-cut runs that um, allow the running backs to just pick a hole and go. Um, But if that wasn't working, they wouldn't have an identity. And I think that's the problem with South Carolina right now is they want to have an identity. It's not like Brian McClendon sitting there like, I just think we're going to try something random this game. It's more that you know, if they ran the ball a bunch of times, people complain that they ran the ball too much against App State. Well, they just didn't didn't run the ball at all. weren't able to um, to get anything going on the ground. Um, and so, you know, people say, oh, they ran the ball too much. They should have been throwing the ball more on first down. Well, they try that against Texas A&M. That doesn't work either. Um, so, again, you know, we could go back to it's less about the process now and more about this is a bad offense that just can't do anything right now. And it sounds like, for you, the fix has less, you know, a lot of people are saying it's got to be Brian McClendon. And for, I think for some people, they think that it's the play calling or the offensive philosophy or, you know, game plan or things like that. I think other people just kind of want to see heads roll because Carolina hasn't gotten it done offensively and somebody needs to pay for that, I guess. But it sounds like in your estimation, it has more to do with execution and, and quality of players and probably quality of playmakers, at, at least as much as the coaching. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of factors in there. My main thing is that there are a lot of South Carolina fans that I think would be really disappointed um, if Brian McClendon, which it sounds like at this point he may end up getting fired or demoted or moved or something, um, they would be disappointed because I've said this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I fully believe it, that if Steve Spurrier were running this offense as it is right now, it still wouldn't be successful. Um, And we've seen that. We saw his 2006, 2007 years, just he didn't really have an offense 
um, probably the greatest offensive line in college football history. Probably, I don't think I'm out of you know out of line saying that. Um, it doesn't matter who the offensive coordinator is; it just would not be working right now. And some of that is personnel. I think some of that is um, inexperience. I, th- I think some of that is the schedule. Um, but it's not simply a well. If we call better plays, we'd run the ball more, or if we call better plays, we'd have more success. Um, as some people have said, so it's like, oh, just let me call plays, and you know, we'd be so much better on offense. No, it's not going to work that way. Even Saturday, watching the game, I, I never felt like that was a terrible play call. Why did you do that? Um, the only time that I remember, like, really questioning something that the offense did in terms of, uh, I guess, like scheme or a specific play call, there was one time when they had a third and ten, and they mm-hmm. had maybe Kyle Markway run like a two-yard out route, and I think Helinski threw it to him and he dropped it or it was broken up or something or maybe he caught it yeah. and it was it was tackled and I'm just thinking why do you even have that route like if, if you're just going to have him run a I think what my roommate said actually is if you're going to have him run a two-yard out route just have him stay in the block and give you some extra protection because you need it yeah but, exactly yeah but by and large I mean I, I'm, I'm with you and that's kind of how I felt all season and why it's been so confusing and why you know even though I, I think it may be this may be an instance where change is warranted just for the sake of just for the sake of change, because sometimes change can be good just to, to shake things up, to have some new eyeballs on those playmakers and on those offense and on those offensive players just to try to get something, some kind of fresh look, just anything to invigorate this offense. I feel like it might be warranted, but it's been, it's, I guess, taken me a while to get there exactly because I just, like you're saying, haven't had any specific problems with anything that Brian's done. It's more about what he's not done, which is more about results than process. And it's just, it's yeah, impossible absolutely. to tell. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've said before that Brian McClendon is a great offensive mind. Um, again, I was watching um, Texas A&M ran a pin and pull, uh, which not many SEC teams have run in the past couple of years. Um, and now it's becoming a trend because South Carolina started running it. Um, or I saw the, a play call from Alabama last week that Brian McClendon was the first one to run. He's a really well-respected offensive mind. Um, and I could see him having success somewhere else, but I think we talked about this a little bit last week. Just it's not working right now. Um, and it may be just a, you know, a, a relationship thing or just things just aren't working out as they are. And so that kind of changes for change's sake thing would be, um, you know, would be something that I could, I can understand that. Um, the other thing I, I thought of, and this is kind of an analogy, I'm a big Lamar Jackson fan. If anybody follows me on Twitter, I'm you know, constantly telling people how they were wrong about Lamar Jackson. Um, I think I retweet my, Lamar Jackson is the best quarterback in this draft uh, like five times a year. But um, Louisville went through the Lamar Jackson effect last year where the offense with Lamar Jackson was really, really good. And it was so good. And Lamar Jackson was so good that people didn't realize how bad the offense actually was. Um, and I think that we're you know, kind of seeing that with South Carolina and Debo Samuel is if South Carolina needed to play last year, it was just, oh, let's run a slant with Debo Samuel. He's going to break a tackle and outrun everybody. Um, and make a you know a 95 yard you know, play, and that's going to um, offset the complete inability we've had to run the ball or whatever. And I, I think um, South Carolina last year lived and died by the big play. Um, we saw it against Clemson. We saw it against um, Ole Miss. We saw it against Florida. Um, they ran the ball well, but only in long run on long runs. They didn't consistently run the ball for five yards a carry. They would run two yards, two yards, two yards, 25 yards. Um, and then the same thing in the passing game. They'd, you know, Jake Bentley on a lot of his passes averaged like four yards a throw and then would hit a big play to Debo Samuel and it would make those passing numbers look better than they actually were. 
I heard people anticipating that kind of drop off for the offense because Samuel was out. And even when it started to happen, people were like, well, you know, you really miss Debo Samuel. And the whole time I was just thinking, you cannot, it cannot be the case. And you can't let yourself believe that an offense can be so dependent on a wide receiver of all positions. You know, the easiest position, I think, for an opponent, for an opponent to game plan for and to, and to take out of a game. You know, you can double guys. You can bracket them. You can just stick your best guy, your best corner on them and just have them follow them all over the field. It's easier to take a wide receiver out of a game than any other player on offense. And I guess I'm, by that, I just mean like quarterback or running back. And I refuse to believe or let myself believe that the Debo could have had that much of an impact on the offense. But at that, at that, at this point, that seems as plausible as anything. And, and so I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because maybe that's just the fact of the matter. But when you have another, I know he's not Debo Samuel, a different type of explosive playmaker, but you have another wide receiver, an NFL caliber wide receiver on your team and Brian Edwards, it seems like at this point, Brian McClendon, Dan Warner should have figured out how to take advantage of Brian McClendon. Again, maybe not in the same way they did Debo, but just in terms of maximizing his ability to help Carolina break some of these games open and steal some of these big plays and and momentum swings that Debo could account for at least a couple of games last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think even um, two years ago, um, Missouri, they're down, what, 10 nothing, 14 nothing. Debo Samuel runs back to touchdown um, and then scores on his next offensive play. Um, NC State did the same thing, um, ran back to opening kickoff. Um, there were just so many ways that Debo Samuel impacted the game that I think we kind of missed some of the underlying um, problems. And I think the offensive line last year was much better. We see how Dennis Daly's been playing. I'm a big Panthers fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dennis Daly's literally has outplayed um, Greg Little, who was a former five-star, maybe second overall player in the country. Um, and, and Dennis Daly outplays him for a left tackle spot for the Panthers. He got hurt this week, and we saw that. Um, but I think the offensive line's a little bit worse this year. And then also you just don't have the senior leadership of Jake Bentley, who say what you want about his throwing ability, um, his tendency to miss throws every once in a while. Um, he threw the ball all over the place. And when he was able to throw, you know, he threw a good deep ball. And for about five weeks last season was the best deep ball throw in the country. Um, and South Carolina's missing that of, you know, you can run into line for no gain twice if you hit a 50-yard pass after that. And South Carolina just, if they get behind the chains, they can't do anything. There's no um, no threat to the defense to gain 25 yards on a play. It's really, at that point, it's a fluky play for the South Carolina offense, which is just so opposite of last year. Carolina has one more chance to crack 30. It's against Clemson. Maybe the best team they'll play all year. I don't expect it to happen. It's just been such an unbelievably disappointing season. And more and more as the season has worn on, I keep thinking back to 2014 and how good that offense was as Dylan Thompson was breaking the single-season passing record for South Carolina and how bad the defense was. I mean, you take an historically great offense and you get a defense that's so bad that Carolina only manages to go 7-6 and six that year. Obviously, 2019 is now worse. By record, Carolina's going to finish 4-8. and eight. They're not even going to get a chance to play that 13th game this year. But I keep thinking about which unit is worse. And maybe that's the pessimistic way to think about it. Maybe I should be framing it as, can you imagine if you took Carolina's 2014 offense and combined it with Carolina's 2019 defense? But I I just wonder which unit was worse, the 2014 defense or this 2019 offense, and especially existing in contrast to the opposing unit, which has just been so strong for Carolina this year, was good again. 13 points allowed through the first three quarters against Texas A&M. They were on the field for 83 plays or 82 plays, whatever it was. You can't expect them to 
give up 13 points in 83 plays. But it's just been so disappointing that that unit hasn't been more lauded because the record for this team is so bad. Absolutely. And I think you saw um, Texas A&M was able at the end of the game just to wear down South Carolina. Um, They didn't throw the ball a lot in the fourth quarter. Um, and that was good for A&M because when they did throw the ball, it was greater than 50% chance that Kellen Mom was pressured um, because Javon Kinlaw had his best game of his career, actually. Um, and it's kind of sad that it comes in a 30-6 to six loss. Um, but South Carolina's defensive front was just absolutely dominant um, against a very good Texas A&M offensive front. Um, but, you know, as you said, once you get to the, you know, 70s and 80s in plays, um, especially with the time of possession being the way that it was, uh, they just got worn down. Um, and all it takes is one or two big plays in the running game. And it looks like South Carolina's defense had a poor game when really they honestly kept South Carolina in the game for most of the game in an, in a game that the offense had no business. You know, the offense was just terrible. There was no reason that South Carolina should have been in that game as long as they were. Yeah, it was a lot of good individual defensive performances and good collectively as a unit. Jamie Robinson picking up 15 tackles, which I saw was the most for a Carolina freshman since I think 1984, which is awesome. You mentioned Javon Kinlaw having the best game of his career. That's incredible. I did not know that. I uh, haven't seen the numbers or asked you yet, but I imagine uh, J.J. Nagbare had one of the better games of the season. He seemed a lot more involved, especially in the pass rush. I think picked up the first sack for Carolina, maybe was credited with another pressure or two. He was very active on Saturday. Just a lot of strong individual performances. Nothing that really caught my eye in terms of anything that A&M did to particularly exploit South Carolina. You mentioned just wearing him down late at the end of the game. There was the one drive when Isaiah Spiller had like three big runs. And then obviously there was the 75 yard touchdown run, but those, I mean, I barely blame the defense for that because they were on the field for so long. Uh, as you mentioned, not only did the defense do a good job of getting after Mon whenever they dropped back to pass, Carolina did a good job of tackling in the open field. The only plays that I guess bothered me that seemed to stump Carolina initially. And they did a good job of, of making adjustments on this is, a&M basically kept running these little screen passes where they would just run like a really long drag route. And I've actually seen Carolina run this a couple times this year for Brian Edwards. I think maybe the first time was in that Vanderbilt game where, you know, he he starts on one side of the field, drags all the way across, and then just dips a little bit behind the line of scrimmage to make it okay that all the receivers are just blocking downfield. A&M ran that a couple times in the first half and got mm-hmm. a big yardage on it. But other than that, I mean, I can't think of a single poor standout defensive or like a, a – a defensive performance, an individual defensive performance that stood out because it was bad. It seemed like everybody had a pretty good game. The grades um, from PFF actually backed that up. The main issue that South Carolina had, as you would kind of expect, um, the worst grade of the game was TJ Brunson. Um, And that's just because when you get ejected from the game after six plays, you don't really grade out well. Um, So he ended up with a 24.7, mostly because of that. He also gave up a big pass play um, in one of his six plays. But the three lowest outside of T.J. Brunson were the three guys that replaced T.J. Brunson. Hmm. So you have Damani Staley, um, Jamar Brown, and Sherrod Green all grading out below 56. Um, Between the four of them, that was over, um, if I'm doing my math correctly, just about half of the passing yardage that A&M had came against um, the Will linebacker position um, of Brunson, Staley, uh, Brown, and Green. Other than that, I mean, South Carolina's defensive line was absolutely dominant. Javon Kinlaw had nine pressures on 36 pass rushes. Mm. Um, The average team gets pressure on about 24% of 
um, pass rushes. So if you do some quick math there, Javon Kinlaw was worse than an entire defensive line in this game um, as far as a pass rushing perspective, um, as was J.J. Anigbare, who had five pressures and 18 pass rushes. Um, so his um, pass rushing um, percentage was just about the same. Um, so between the two of them, that's 14 pressures. Uh, D.J. Wanham added one. Aaron Sterling added three. And um, that was 18 of the 19 pressures that South Carolina had on A&M. That's impressive. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, he was credited with five pressures. Was uh, Inigbar? You said five, right? Five. Yeah, five. Yeah, because it, it was it was good to see him. I was expecting him to be someone at the beginning of the season that popped a little bit more than it seemed like he had this year. And I think that speaks more to the depth on Carolina's defensive line than his individual performance necessarily. They just haven't needed him to play more than you know whatever 15, 20, 25 snaps a game. Uh, I am glad you mentioned the stats of those backup linebackers, though. I had forgotten. When I was thinking about big passing plays, obviously the busted coverage that led to the long passing touchdown for A&M. Looked like Damani Staley, maybe, who let his guy get away. Um, and then I guess the the first Brunson catch given up to, I guess, was a, I think maybe to Wedmeyer. Um, I remember, I mean, not that Brunson got mossed exactly, but it was a perfect throw and a really good catch by Wedmeyer. So I, I, I imagine that he was penalized for that because you give up a, a big reception. But it was, you know, he covered that about as well as you could expect um, a linebacker to have covered that. So um, I guess with those things in mind, um, sounds like everything else was, was good. Other members of the secondary, Jamie Robinson, I'm sure had a good grade. Uh, JC Horn. I don't remember him allowing a catch. He may have, I'm sure he did at some point, but seemed to be pretty locked down. Mukwamu continues to get penalized for uh, looking at any player. I, I guess that's just, is that, is that just his reputation now? I guess it's his reputation. Um, also, the opposite I thought was really funny. There was a pretty obvious holding penalty on him, and you know, for the second time this season, they didn't call it. Um, so it seems that he gets called for everything, and nobody ever gets called for anything against him. Um, but yeah, between um, Horn and um, Mukwamu, uh, A&M went two for six with 19 yards. So J.C. Horn, you have to go back to, I believe, Kentucky. Um, the last time he's given up, or uh, he's given up a total of like a hundred yards in his last mm. six games, I believe. Um, really weird season for him. I mean, poor game against who was it? Um, Georgia actually. Um, that was against George Pickens and Alabama against uh, Jerry Judy. Um, gave up between those two games a hundred and or two hundred and sixteen yards, and the rest of the season has given up a hundred and sixty. So kind of weird season for him in that regard. Um, if you look at his numbers with and without those games, um, he's one of the best cover corners in the SEC without those two games, and he's very average if you add in those two games. Hmm. Interesting. I um, As I sit here and think ahead to what the Clemson game is going to look like and to what the spread is, I imagine the spread will be like 34, 37, 38, somewhere in the neighborhood, and I'm fully expecting Carolina to score fewer than 10 on offense, so it's just going to be a matter of what can this defense do. Um, and it's a unit that it's been a weird season for them because they've been, I think, really good all year long. They've had their moments where they looked bad, you know, some missed tackles in the second half against North Carolina, the big plays given up against Tennessee, but even still, even in both of those games, you give up 24 to North Carolina, you only give up 23 points on defense to Tennessee. They've done a good job, even when they've given up big plays, of, of not letting those be scoring plays necessarily all the time. I guess Tennessee being the exception there. Um, but it's been, a, a, I guess, a successful execution of the bend-don't-break philosophy. And I'm very curious to see 
how this group does. Obviously, they get about 47 against Alabama. This is going to be probably the second-best group of receivers that they see all year, and Trevor Lawrence seems to be finding his groove after starting the season kind of shaky. I'm really curious to see, though, because for Javon Kinlaw, for J.C. Horn, um, you know, n- people stopped watching South Carolina weeks and weeks ago. They're going to be watching the Clemson game because that's a team that's probably going to be in the college football playoff. That's kind of the last chance this year. And for a guy like Kinlaw, who obviously doesn't have any more eligibility, to make a real statement. And it seems like Kinlaw's going in with the right kind of momentum after nine pressures against A&M. Yeah, and I honestly think that he's going to be able to um, play well against Clemson's offensive line. Um, I think that the corners should be able to hold up pretty decently. Um, the reason I say that is you look at the, you know, while Alabama and Clemson have very similar um, talent level receivers, uh, very different receivers. Clemson has a lot of um, bigger, more possession guys, you know, go up and get ball. And you have your starting corners all over six foot. Um, Jamie Robinson, I think being, I'd probably give him five eleven. Um, but you look at that versus Alabama's receivers are all four, three guys, some actually in the four twos um, as far as speed. And so very different wide receiver cores, even though the numbers are good for both of them. Um, so I'm really interested to see. Um, I think that this particular group of um, South Carolina corners matches up well. If I remember correctly, and I may be able to look it up, um, I think that the Clemson game last year was the game that we started looking at Israel Mukwamu as a legitimate corner mm-hmm. and not just the other guy outside of J.C. Horn. Um, if I can you know, pull this up really quickly. Yeah, against Clemson last year, um, was targeted um, – Five times gave up um, gave up three three receptions, but um, I remember him playing really well against Clemson. Um, played is the most snaps he had played up until that point in his career. Um, so I think that this group of corners actually matches up really well with um, with Clemson, to be honest. Yeah, well, it'll be a really fun matchup, and again, it's. It, it makes such a huge difference when you can actually get pressure on opposing quarterback like Carolina was able to do against A&M and the games that they haven't, you know, it's made the secondary look a heck of a lot worse because when you just have time to sit back there and, and pick a team apart. Now I fully expect Clemson to have a great game plan. Maybe we'll see them run some max protect and just run three man routes because that worked for Tennessee. And clearly Clemson has the has the horses to, to do that as well. But um, that'll be an interesting matchup. And Carolina has got an extra, extra week to prepare for that defensively. Again, I think Carolina will still lose by at least 30, maybe 40, just because I don't expect them to be able to score at all against Clemson. But it has been very enjoyable to watch this defense for most of the year. Again, second half against Tennessee, not so much. Fourth quarter of some of these games when they've been on the field for like 500 snaps, not so much, but just a lot of good individual performances. And uh, like I said earlier, it's just kind of a shame that a bunch of good defenders on a good unit will be forgotten because the season's going to end up uh, four and eight for Carolina. Um, but we've gone a little bit long here, and I appreciate your time as always. Before we get out of here, do you have anything else that stood up from the game Saturday that you wanted to get to? Um, not particularly. I think this is one of the more straightforward games that we've seen. Um, in a negative way, of course, for uh, Gamecock fans. But um, not really anything to that was like, whoa, I didn't expect that, um, other than maybe the Javon Kinlaw pressure, uh, pressure stats. But, um, you know, South Carolina's got to find something on offense. Um, I expect some, you know, some trick plays, anything they can do to, um, you know, to get some sort of momentum against Clemson. Um, I'd like to see this offense come out five wide and just throw it, you know, 40 yards down the field, (laughs) kind of do this. You know, if you 
complete one out of three passes for 40 yards every possession, um, you're going to score a lot of points on um, a lot of points on aggregate. So you know, might as well just spread them out, see what you can do, see if you can hit a, a bomb every once in a while instead of trying to march down the field because this offense isn't going to be able to march down the field on Clemson. No, and that worked last year. That was c- kind of the exact strategy. I love that. It's sort of the, the money ball approach to college football, which we don't see a lot of, but it seems like are seeing more and more of. I know you've been excited in recent weeks to see more teams around the country in the NFL and in college start doing this thing where you go for two when you're down by 14 and you score that first touchdown to come back into the game. Uh, that was one that took me a while to, to come around to, but um, was fantastic. yeah, seeing, seeing more of that. So maybe we'll see Carolina embrace, a, you know, a few of these other different kind of experimental styles or, you know, money ball approaches. And uh, I guess we'll have a couple weeks to prepare for that, but will thank you so much as always follow him on Twitter at W Helms 21. Check out his website, his company. In fact, prep RA prep dash RA.com for anybody. If you or anyone, you know, is interested in being a, a true student athlete, pursuing your academics and your athletics at the next level. Prep RA is awesome for tutoring, for SAT prep, for football-related things as well. Um, is it just football? Do you all do all athletics? Um, I'm most connected with football. Okay. Um, that's a lot of what I do, but I do actually do all sports. So, yeah. Okay, great. So any kind of athlete that you're interested in pursuing both academics and athletics on the next level, check out prep-ra.com. Will, um, I guess it's a it's an open week for Carolina, but we'll do something next Monday, maybe sort of wrapping up the season or, or do a, a big Clemson extravaganza. I don't know. We'll have something planned, but I'll talk to you next Monday. All right, sounds good. All right, thanks again so much to Will. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Great follow. One of my favorites on Twitter, just smart sports guy, not just Carolina stuff, all sports. Um, And thank you all for listening to this. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Pearson Fowler. We will be back later this week on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network with another another Carolina podcast with Wes and Chris. Until then, y'all have a good week. We'll talk to you Wednesday.